Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Monitor Monday. Prescription drug prices and the HIV epidemic were in the nation's spotlight last Tuesday. That's when President Donald Trump called for cutting drug prices and eliminating the HIV epidemic. Those two issues will be reported later in the broadcast when the president and CEO for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni, returns to Monitor Monday with her 340B State of the Union address right here on Monitor Monday. Also on today's Monitor Monday, you're going to hear how one hospital is fighting to get its Medicare Advantage patients into long-term acute care facilities. The problem is being denied by payers. Dr. Howard Stein has that report. And speaking of payers, Anthem Health is being sued by disgruntled policyholders in a class action lawsuit. National renowned whistleblower attorney Mary Inman is standing by with that report. Rack Monitor and investigative reporter in New York attorney Ed Roach reports on a scientific breakthrough in DNA sequencing. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. And Nancy Beckler reports on all the latest hot topics and the Monitor Money Listener Survey. We begin this morning with Dr. Julia Dugarte Hopkins, who's making her Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Good morning, everyone. Medicine has commonly been considered one of the most altruistic professions. From long years spent in training to long hours spent caring for others and the perpetual drive to heal those who are hurt and comfort those who are in need, putting our patients and their families first is essentially our creed. This is precisely why it is so difficult for some of us to carry out a specific aspect of our job. When a patient presents to the emergency department with a need for placement, a team of professionals jump into action. Beyond the physicians and nurses who assess for medical concerns, social workers and case managers search for the best location and facility to meet the patient's needs. Sometimes the transition is from home to a subacute rehabilitation facility. Other times, it's from an assisted living facility to a skilled nursing facility. Multiple barriers can interfere with progression of the plan, including medical clearance, facility bed availability, and time of day. Ultimately, if no option is found, there is only one place for the patient to go, into a hospital unit bed. And this is the hard part. The patient does not medically require hospitalization. She is being hospitalized for custodial care which could take place outside of the hospital, if only there was a facility for the patient to move to. Chapter 30, Section 50 of the Medicare Claims and Processing Manual states that an advance beneficiary notice of non-coverage, or ABN, can be used, quote, prior to providing custodial care, end quote. Presenting an ABN to the patient in the emergency room informs them of the potential financial liability which could be theirs, which stinks. But what is the alternative? If the patient doesn't pay for the services, the hospital will. As a physician advisor, a common lament I hear from physicians and case managers is how mean or unfair it is 
for us to expect the patients to pay for this type of hospitalization. And I agree, it certainly feels that way. However, while in the business of caring, hospitals are still businesses, and like any business, providing services without reimbursement will lead to eventual threat of closure. Granted, there are plenty of ways in which hospitals can curb costs and reduce spending, but we need to be honest with ourselves and with the fact that this is just one more. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Ugarte-Hopkins. That was Dr. Julian Ugarte-Hopkins. She is the physician advisor for case management at ProHealthcare in the great state of Wisconsin. She was substituting today for Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who was on assignment. Here now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckler. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning all. Good news on the hot topics front. CMS has posted to the provider enrollment and certification page the good news that the longstanding moratorium on new home health agencies and branch locations for Florida, Illinois, Michigan, and Texas has finally come to an end. The link to the CMS announcement is in the handout tabs if you want to take a peek at that. CMS began moratoriums on new home health agencies way back in February of 2011 and was specific to certain counties in those identified states. Within a few years, CMS then extended the moratoriums to include those entire states, and this moratorium has been continually extended, as we have frequently reported on Monitor Monday. So now, as of January 30th, 2019, there are no moratoria on new home health agencies and branch locations. If you're waiting to establish a home health agency or branch location or had an application pending, time to start again with your home health and hospice Medicare administrative contractor. So that is hot news, Chuck. Emily, can you please bring up our Monitor Monday listener survey this morning? Occasionally, we like to poll where people are in terms of their jurisdiction as well as their RAC jurisdiction. This morning, we're going to take a look at which RAC jurisdiction do you call home. Check number one for Region 1, number two for Region 2, three for Region 3, four for Region 4, and Region 5 is DME Home Health and Hospice. And check the last one if you're in more than one region with your product lines. Chuck will be back a little bit later with the results of the poll brought to us by the American College of Physician Advisors. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about uh, seven minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Mary Inman, Ed Roach, Dr. Howard Stein, and our special guest this morning, the President and CEO over 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. This is Monday. It's February the 11th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Here's important information about the recovery audit contractors, the RACs. Listen closely. Three changes to the RAC program could threaten your organization. There are new rules for using extrapolation. There are changes to additional documentation requests, ADRs. And there is a new audit for inpatient total knee arthroplasty. You need to know the rules that a RAC auditor must follow. Otherwise, you will not know whether the RAC auditor is abiding by the rules or exerting more power over your facility than the RAC legally has. Register to attend. Biggest RAC's changes are here. Learn to avoid denied claims. This webcast comes your way Tuesday, February 19th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, click on the handout tab in today's Monitor Monday. 
Thank you, Clark Anthony. And remember, you can save $40 when you register for this webcast. Simply enter the coupon code MONDAY. And speaking of Rack Monitor webcasts, now you and your team can benefit from more than 50 compliance webcasts when you subscribe to the 2019 Rack Monitor webcast series. Oh, boy, that's good news. And now for the Monitor Money Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. Good morning, Chuck. So last week, I discussed why I think Medicare Advantage plans have to follow the two-midnight rule. Well, it certainly got people talking. I received a bunch of emails with comments and questions. First, I want to note I love getting comments and questions. I can't promise I can answer every question for free, but I can promise to review everything I get. So a few people noted that I should have inc- the, uh, something that I should have included in the segment last week. CMS agrees that when providing coverage outside the network, plans must follow the two midnight rule. In essence, CMS agrees that plans have to, uh, but, uh, um, but there's a huge but that comes along with that statement. And no, today's song is not Sir Mix-a-Lot. CMS believes that while it has expectations about what a plan should do with healthcare organizations, if the healthcare organization opts to enter into a contract that surrenders its rights to which it would otherwise be entitled, that's between the healthcare organization and the plan, and CMS won't get involved. That's a really important point, and it can affect a number of issues. For example, before CMS revised its position a year or so ago, there was considerable controversy about the need for fraud, waste, and abuse training. But the applicable requirement was on the plan itself, not healthcare organizations. Many plans sought to impose draconian training requirements, in some cases demanding that all healthcare professionals watch long, dull slide decks. The law didn't require healthcare organizations to do that, but most agreements with MA plans did. So this highlights a very important point. Whoever does your contracting with health plans needs to understand that if you want to avoid a particular obligation or to impose a particular obligation, like the plan will follow the two-midnight rule, You must word your contract accordingly. Now, obviously, larger organizations or places that have the ability to just say no to the plans are in a much better position here. So if you don't use your contract to solve the the problem, can the plan ignore the two-midnight rule? The answer isn't crystal clear to me. So last week, I mentioned the risk that the patient pays more if they're treated as an outpatient than an inpatient. One wise listener disputed that claim with the following example. So let's say the patient is paying 20% of the outpatient uh, APC, um, and the outpatient, and, and in addition, they also have to pay for their outpatient meds. That bill might be under 1000 bucks, but the Part A deductible is around $1,300. So she said, hey, you're paying less there. Now, her point is fair, but I would counter that a deductible can be met. If this is the patient's second hospitalization of the year, that patient is worse off if they're categorized as an outpatient. The fact that we can come up with scenarios under which the patient is not worse off doesn't mean that there aren't other scenarios where the patient is harmed. Plans are statutorily required to provide patients with benefits that are as generous as traditional Medicare. Another listener recounted his exchanges with CMS and offered a detailed analysis of the statute. He noted that there's a Section 2 in Social Security Act, Section 1852, that describes how MA plans can meet the test for providing the same benefits that traditional Medicare offers. The listener correctly points out that this section carves out plans that have contracts with hospitals. 
But the way the statute is written, that just means they're carved out of an explanation of how people can satisfy the test. Nothing in the law suggests that plans with a contract are somehow totally exempted from the requirement that they offer benefits as generous as traditional Medicare. So to sum up, tell your contracting people that you want the MA plan to honor the two midnight rule. Read your contract and realize that whether you're dead or alive, this statute makes your head spin right round. Baby, right round like a record, baby. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks so very much. That was health character today, David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Rack Monitor investigative reporter and New York attorney Ed Roach reports on a new scientific breakthrough on DNA sequencing. Good morning, Ed. Thanks for being with us. What's this all about? Hi, Chuck. Uh, today's topic is DNA sequencing, its effect on society as a whole, on health care, and on Medicare. Sequencing is a laboratory procedure that maps the pattern of nucleotides in DNA. In 2003, sequencing an individual cost $2.7 billion. By 2006, it was $300,000, and now the entire genome can be sequenced for $700, with some tests running around $50. There are four nucleases, cytosine, guanine, adenine, and thymine, abbreviated CGAT, a sugar called deoxyribose with a phosphate group linked them into a chain. Hydrogen bonds tie together two chains with base pairs of AT and CG. These DNA strands are long. In only one of the 46 human chromosomes, there are around 220 million base pairs. These chains are torn apart, and the sequence of nucleases help build proteins, but the system mucks up some of the time. Most of the time, a mock-up really doesn't matter, but sometimes it does, and in a big way, such as with cancer. By taking the DNA of normal humans and comparing it to the DNA of humans with a special disease, it is possible to determine where the problem is, a genome-wide association study. The BRCA gene linked to breast cancer was found this way, a single protein glitch can cause incredible problems. If your DNA at the 9P21.2 location gets mucked up, then a single protein is not made and you get Lou Gehrig's disease. DNA profiling allows genetic fingerprinting. It is used in criminal investigations in finding out who the father really is or in identification of persons when there's not much left to go on, such as after an airplane crash. Personalized medicine, or pharmacogenomics, uses genetic information to help identify optimal therapies for individual patients. It also is possible to find out if you may be susceptible to certain diseases. Type 2 diabetes risk can be identified through sequencing. This gives an opportunity to change lifestyle before it's too late. Today's current rage is the use of DNA sequencing to discover one's ancestry. People sometimes are surprised to learn their ancestors are from some very unexpected places. 
if everyone in the United States took a DNA test, they would quickly realize how mixed up everyone is and racism would disappear. In Medicare, DNA sequencing is being used for patients with advanced cancer. The current administration has finalized a national coverage determination that will reimburse providers for diagnostic tests using sequencing. For example, the F1CDX test is a companion diagnostic for 15 targeted therapies. It looks for genetic mutations in 324 genes and two genomic signatures in any solid tumor. We should all be proud that CMS is covering the most advanced DNA sequencing techniques and at the same time, driving research to even greater heights. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Monitor Investigative Reporter and New York Attorney Ed Roach. Ed is the Director of Scientific Intelligence for Barraclue, New York, LLC. And some health is back in the news. A giant insurer is being sued by disgruntled policyholders in a class action lawsuit. Here now with that story is nationally recognized whistleblower attorney, Marion. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. Early last week, Francis Kirby and John David Marks, two individual policyholders from Cook County, Georgia, filed a class action lawsuit in federal court in Atlanta against Anthem and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Georgia for misleading them and thousands of other similarly situated Georgia consumers in the sale of Anthem's Pathway Health Insurance Plan, a product available through an Affordable Care Act health care exchange for consumers seeking individual and family health insurance policies. The gravamen of the complaint is that during the most recent open enrollment period from November 1 to December 15, 2018, Anthem fraudulently induced Georgia consumers to buy Anthem's individual health coverage by falsely representing that Wellstar Health System, Georgia's largest health care provider, was an in-network covered provider when, in fact, Anthem allegedly had notified Wellstar several months earlier in August 2018 that Wellstar would no longer be covered by the Pathway Plan. The complaint alleges the following as among the deceptive business practices in which Anthem allegedly engaged. Throughout the enrollment period, the provider finder tool on Anthem's website included Wellstar doctors and hospitals as in-network providers, knowing they would not be in-network after February 4, 2019, one month after the new policy was issued. To enroll for Anthem's Pathway Individual Insurance Plan, new policyholders were required to select a primary care physician, and Wellstar doctors were included among the list of qualifying PCPs policyholders could choose. And in some instances, Anthem issued health insurance cards to plaintiffs that included the name of a Wellstar doctor on the card while failing to inform consumers that the coverage would be terminated and those PCPs would no longer be in network on February 4, 2019. If the allegations are proved, the consequences for individual consumers could be significant. According to the complaint, the two named plaintiffs each have significant health issues requiring them to be seen regularly by their Wellstar PCPs and a large number of Wellstar specialists. The plaintiffs allege they only chose Anthem over their previous health insurer after confirming that their Wellstar primary care physicians and specialists and Wellstar Hospital were represented as in-network. 
They will experience a lapse in treatment as they seek other in-network providers of whom there are far fewer options in the competitor insurer's plans and will have to travel 25 miles to the next closest covered hospital, the complaint alleges. Since the open enrollment period is now closed, the plaintiffs allege that consumers are locked into the Pathways plan under, until November 19 and will continue to pay premiums for a health insurance product with fewer providers and hospitals, which they would not have purchased had they known the truth that Wellstar would not be in network. Since the case was only filed last week, we have not had an opportunity to hear Anthem's response to the allegations. Last week, Anthem announced it was extending benefits regarding Wellstar PCPs for another 90 days until May 4, 2019. Media outlets like Becker's Hospital Review and the Atlantic Journal-Constitution are reporting that this change came at the prodding of the Georgia Department of Insurance, which governs whether health insurers are meeting legal standards with their policy offerings. We will continue to monitor this case as it develops, including as defendants respond and the plaintiffs move the court to get a Georgia class certified. That's it for me. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. That was nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary was calling in live from London. Are you experiencing this situation at your facility? You're trying to get some of your Medicare Advantage patients into long-term acute care facilities, but you're being denied by the payer. Well, that's the frustration Dr. Howard Stein is experiencing here now. That report is the aforementioned Dr. Howard Stein. Good morning, Dr. Stein. Welcome to Monitor Monday. What's the issue here? Thank you, Chuck. And in my opinion, patients are being managed out of their benefits on some Medicare Advantage programs. Administrative overhead for Medicare fee-for-service runs approximately 2 to 3%, whereas overhead for commercial insurance plans is usually reported to be about 18 to 20%. So what services are being, de- excuse me, being denied by Medicare Advantage plans to make up this cost difference? Physician advisors, nurse care managers, and social workers request authorizations for their inpatients each day only to be put through a paperwork maze of speed bumps in an attempt to filter out the services the plan wishes to pay for. As more healthcare organizations move toward a DRG payment per stay rather than a per diem reimbursement, Medicare Advantage plans no longer are incentivized to move a patient out of the hospital quickly. In fact, they favor tardiness as the hospital continues to care for their member without gaining additional reimbursement. One glaring example is authorizations for long-term acute care services. LTACs were created to accept patients with prolonged hospital stays that will require additional stays to solve difficult medical problems. Most LTACs are 10 to 20 bed units that are hospitals within a hospital managed by a critical care physician. They specialize on prolonged weaning of oxygen for ventilated or high-dose oxygen patients who cannot be managed in an acute or subacute rehabilitation setting. LTACs also manage prolonged wound care patients that require hyperalimentation, wound vacuums, and have prolonged immobility. LTACs have proven themselves to have better patient outcomes than acute care hospitals in these areas. However, Many Medicare Advantage plans routinely deny authorizations for LTAC transfer, saying that the same service 
can be accomplished in the acute care hospital. It is clear to me that some Medicare Advantage plans simply care about the bottom line rather than provide the best care for their member. When patients forego Medicare fee-for-service for a Medicare Advantage plan, they're told they will have the same benefits for a lower cost. But is that really true? Medicare Advantage plans pay for their overhead and generate profit for their shareholders by limiting or denying other services, including acute rehabilitation, subacute rehabilitation, ambulance transport, and by medical necessity denials, just to name a few. But that's a topic for another day. There is little that can be done to solve the problem immediately. Since payer hospital contracts rule the day, few contracts include the LTAC authorization process. Grievances can be filed to CMS utilizing Dr. Phil Baker's process outlined on the RAC Relief Listserv and on the ACPA website. Patients' families can advocate for themselves and can call and complain to their health plan. I doubt when seniors are recruited by their MA plan breakfasts and commercials that they're aware that some benefits will not be approved. Perhaps they'll just have to be satisfied with the free pair of eyeglasses that these plans pay for. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dr. Stein. That was Dr. Howard Stein. Dr. Stein is the Associate Director of Medical Affairs, and he's a Physician Advisor in Care Management at Central State Medical Center in Freehold, New Jersey. Last Tuesday, in his State of the Union address, President Donald Trump called for cutting drug prices and eliminating the HIV epidemic. Reporting on these two issues is the President, CEO for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. Good morning, Maureen. Welcome back to Monitor Money. So what is the State of the Union for 340B? Good morning, Chuck, and thanks for having me back. We recently completed an extraordinary year, year of focus on the 340B drug pricing program. Over the course of 12 months, Congress held four hearings on 340B, and more than 20 pieces of legislation were proposed. This was unheard of. As a result, like never before, 340B was under a magnifying glass. The focus on 340B comes at a time when our nation's policymakers are looking for ways to reduce the often incredibly high prices of many prescription drugs. In January, for example, three dozen drug companies raised their prices on more than 250 of the most prescribed drugs on the market, with some rising by 10% or more. Many of these are tried-and-true drugs that have been on the market for quite some time uh, and upon which many patients have relied on for years. 340B is one of the few successful efforts to reduce drug costs for, the, for those hospitals, health centers, and clinics that meet stringent requirements to prove that they serve a significant share of low-income individuals. These safety net providers then invest the money they save on drugs to expand access to more patients. In fact, 340B hospitals are responsible for 60% of all hospital and compensated care in the United States, but they represent just 38% of acute care hospitals. All of this at no cost to taxpayers. They also add services that are vital to good health, things like medication management programs, trauma care, and care for people living with HIV. The good news is that the hearings on Capitol Hill gave, gave 340B providers a chance to share with lawmakers the kinds of care that 340B savings allow them to provide. Senator after senator and representative after representative talked about how important 340B is for safety net providers in their states and communities. In the end, none of the harmful legislation was enacted into law. 
In fact, none of the bills even came up for a vote. But the challenges didn't stop on Capitol Hill. There were also regulatory hurdles. For the first time ever, Medicare paid less, almost 30% less, to 340B hospitals for the drugs they give to patients. More than 200 members of Congress co-sponsored legislation to reverse those payment reductions. But hospitals also took the government to court. And in December, a federal judge ruled that the government went beyond what the law allows and issued a permanent injunction against the regulation that cut the payments. That decision could still be appealed, but it's a great first step. A second important matter involves transparency and accountability for drug manufacturers. 340B prices are not public information. This means 340B providers have no way to check whether they are being overcharged by drug manufacturers. After several government reports documented widespread overcharging of 340B providers by drug manufacturers, Congress created penalties for drug companies that knowingly overcharge for 340B drugs. Congress also required that 340B prices be shared with providers. But enforcement of those rules was delayed five times. So we took action and went to court. Ultimately, the government agreed to start enforcement on January 1st of this year. And on April 1st, a new website will be available to 340B providers that will list the 340B prices for all 340B drugs. This is very good news. In 2019, we have a new Congress with some new leaders, and the administration is likely to follow up on concerns they published about 340B last year. There are more challenges ahead for 340B, but I'm confident that the strength of 340B and its positive impact on low-income communities will help us to continue to protect 340B for the future. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Maureen, very much. That was the President and CEO for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. Thanks again, Maureen. Now's the time for our Monitor Money listener survey. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Thanks, Chuck. And this was a fun little poll to have this morning. We do this uh, frequently to test where people are. Brought to you by the American College of Physician Advisors. We have 26% of our listeners this morning are in more than one region based upon their health system. 21% in Region 1, 15% Region 2, 15% in Region 3, and 14% in Region 4 with 6% in Region 5, which is DME Home Health and Hospice. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you very much. That's going to be for us. And we want to thank you for starting off your week with us. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, David Glazer, Mary Inman, Ed Roach, Dr. Howard Stein, Dr. Julia Duarte Hopkins, and our special guest this morning, the President and CEO for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. And we look forward to your being with us again next Monday for another live edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.